Welcome to episode 155 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. On today's show, we're talking to Matthew Klein, founder of Collective2.com, and also author of Con Ed and Switchback. Hi, Matthew. Welcome to the show. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me on. So you're like the, the perfect storm for us. You have, you're a founder of a web startup. You are an algorithmic trader, which is something we've been talking a little bit about lately. And you've also written a couple of novels, which seems to be a topic we've been covering lately, too. So I'm not even sure where we're going to start on this. Well, you know, I, I only wish you were also doing a show on venereal disease, then I'd be a, a, a triple header for you guys. But uh, thanks for having me anyway. We could go there. I don't test this, because we will go there. <laughs> um, so, okay, you know, you do all this stuff. I guess, well, I guess we just start from the beginning. Sometimes that's the easiest thing to uh, do. Let's get a little heads up of at least what Collective 2 is so that, so that listeners have an idea, like, why should they be listening to a show about Matthew Yes, Klein? so for all of you who are about to turn off the show, we're going to tell you why you should care. Okay, so, yeah. well, so, I appreciate that. Thanks. Okay. Uh, and and let, me, let me summarize also, so if my wife is listening, she should uh, also not turn off the show. Um, okay. Right. So let me tell you about Collective 2 and what it is and why it's interesting to uh, me and about 10 other people. Okay. Um, we Collective Two is essentially it's a website that uh, is I, I guess the way to describe it, uh, although this would have been more glamorous sounding about seven years ago, is that it's an eBay for algorithmic trading systems. It's essentially a platform where you can come and look for an algorithm and take that algorithm and apply it to your own trading. So if you have a retail brokerage account at some of the brokers that we work with, uh, you can come to our site and plug in one of our algos and start trading automatically in your brokerage account. And on the other side of things, the, the seller perspective, if you are an algo developer or just a plain old good trader, uh, you can come to our site and submit your algorithm onto our platform and then have uh, it traded in hundreds or potentially thousands of brokerage accounts and you can be compensated uh, for your intellectual property. So my background is probably uh, not as atypical as I'd like to pretend. I was a child of the first dot-com bubble uh, pre-2001. I was at Stanford Business School, and I was um, a hacker who put together some computer software, which ultimately uh, became a uh, venture capital-funded technology company out in Silicon Valley. Um, and I, you know... Uh, built that company and uh, a company after that uh, along the same lines, and they were both uh, fairly disastrous in terms <laughs> of uh, financial results. I mean, we ultimately uh, shut both companies down, and they didn't uh, really become anything. But uh, I learned a lot from uh, starting those two companies, and primarily what I learned, I can summarize in about 10 seconds, which is that uh, it's really hard to work with a lot of people at once, and um, it's not always the best idea to have a lot of money available to you when you're starting a company. So I took those two lessons and um, 
I started a company that I could just run out of a second bedroom with just myself. And that was collective too. And we literally haven't raised a uh, dollar venture capital. You know, it's interesting what you say about the lesson you learned. I think there was something called the Startup Genome Project. And they did a, a sort of a deep analysis of all of these startups that succeeded and failed. And the number one uh, reason why uh, a lot of these companies failed was that they had too much money too soon and they tried to scale before they had, I guess, what you'd call product market fit. And you just, you have a bunch of people, you have a vague idea, you don't know what's going on, and then it just turns into disaster. Is that kind of? Yeah, I think there's, there's some of that. I mean, uh, there's, there's another more insidious um, uh, effect going on as well, which is that, you know, if, and, and by the way, I, I have good friends that are venture capitalists, and I, and I like venture capitalists as human beings, but, but I don't <laughs> often think that, um, uh, I sometimes think that venture capital is not the right answer for many companies. And I think what happens when you're a venture capitalist is your uh, risk-reward profile is very different than when you're an entrepreneur. I'm only saying something that's, that's pretty obvious, I think, nowadays, which is that, you know, when you're a VC, you want to swing for the fences because a little piddling um, $5 million, $6 million, $7 million sale of a company is a, is a loss to your fund. Whereas if you're um, an entrepreneur who can somehow make that happen after having not raised any venture capital, if that's something that's interesting to you, that's a financial success. Uh, not that uh, selling your company is necessarily the be-all and end-all of, of entrepreneurial success, but the point is you, you have subtle and overt pressures when you're a VC-funded company to go big. And, and that means do things uh, much faster then maybe is right and uh, with less, uh, let's call it, with less give for failure. So uh, one of the things that, you know, I've learned at Collective 2, uh, which, you know, I think people can learn at any small company, is that the, at least in this market space, the right way to proceed is to try things in a very small way and see what happens and make sure that there is actually a market for what you're doing and make sure that if it's a software feature or or um, some sort of utility that you're adding to your website that make sure that it actually works the way you expect it to and people like it the way you expect them to before you devote uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars and many man hours to developing it further. And this all occurred when these first two companies, was it all before the crash in uh, 2000? Yeah. So, I, I mean, it's really not that interesting. I wish I could tell you a more interesting story about a company that you've heard of, but I, but the two companies I started were were pretty different, and and uh, it was it, they were started right before. Well, uh, one of them was started in 1905 or so, and uh, I left that company and I started a second one. And actually, you know, I I still look back at that experience. The second company I started was a company named Tech Planet, and uh-huh. I still look back at that experience as 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 really um, well for me uh, interesting because. I remember starting that company and saying to myself, you know what, um, I am not going to be taken in by the tech bubble and the excitement and frothiness of uh, web startups. I'm going to do something very low tech. So I started a company whose job was to uh, visit people's home offices and small offices and set stuff up. Uh, you know, you may remember a company called Geek Squad. Yeah, I have to which, say this is the yeah. precursor, right? Yeah, well, I, I wish I could say it was, it was financially the precursor, but it was a company that was in the same space as, as Geek Squad and, and companies like that. I mean, you know, a lot of people had that idea. But I, I think I was seduced by the siren song of bigness, and uh, there was a lot of money to be had. And, you know, just, I mean, 
I don't know how much you want to talk about the, 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 the things that can go wrong with entrepreneurialism, but, but certainly one thing I experienced personally was the fact that I, I began to judge my success by the wrong metrics. You know, when you're a VC funded company and you have effectively for at least for a limited period of time, infinite money to spend, what do you, how do you judge your success? Well, you might be obvious, you know, talking about it today, the three of us, that the way you should judge your success is whether you make a profit or not. But I can tell you that never entered into my considerations. It never entered into the, the considerations of our board of directors. We had completely different metrics that were exogenous to making money. They were things like, uh, how many people did we employ? How many cities did we have a, quote, footprint in? So once you begin having those weird metrics... Uh, you try to, you know, maximize them. And that's what we right. were doing in that company. It was, it was, you know, looking back on it, it was like bizarre. I mean, I don't know what I was thinking. I was smoking some sort of uh, VC. Crack. But was that, was that just a function of the time? I mean, did it, these days people are thinking in more of a lean way, generally speaking. Well, I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll challenge you a little bit on that. I, I, of course, it was a, a product of the times. And, um, you know, I, I don't think it would have we would get away with that today where we walk into a board meeting and, and announce proudly how successful we are because now we employ 410 people instead of 408 <laughs> people. I mean, that's certainly not going to cut it today, but on the other hand, um, you know, I still just for kicks, I subscribe to some of those, um, uh, blogs and, and podcasts that are still from that old world, things like TechCrunch and, uh, you know, things like that, where, I read these articles about these startups and I, I just think to myself, I, I'm, I'm really, I don't know if it, maybe it is jealousy. I, I'm not sure. I don't think it is. I think I'm really puzzled by the fact that there is that attitude in those, at least in that little um, echo chamber of, of, of technology media, that success is judged by how much money you raise. Uh, now it right, is, right. Or, or by valuations, which I guess, you know, is, is, I, at least that makes a little more sense than how many employees you have. But even so, that's not really how you create a sustainable company by by selling to a bigger sucker than you. So anyway, I you know I had that experience and and it didn't end in a in a pretty way for me financially. And you know I I I I was really kind of sad about how those two companies ended. And so I I really uh, effectively just retreated into my into my bedroom <laughs> uh, <laughs> that and, case. Uh, started a new company and this was a company that you know uh, uh, to be to be really honest about it i i didn't even really think of it as starting a company i just thought of it as oh i'm you know i'm really interested in algorithmic trading for all sorts of bizarre uh, personal reasons you know i come from a family where my my dad was you know nowadays he would be called an algorithmic trader back then he was just an early adopter of things called trading systems and uh, he, yeah, growing up, I always saw him playing around with systems and computers. And so um, I just started a little hobby site where I could track trading systems online and see their performance. And from that little hobby grew a, a business which, um, you know, is, is doing pretty well for me and, and the, the small group of people that we employ. Yes, well... I, I guess I think the sort of the what you've learned resonates very well with the things that we talk about. I mean, we tend to focus more on bootstrap startups, and I think partially because that's what we're doing. But I think also we have, I mean, we probably have a little more respect for it because you, it's like you're doing it on your own. Um, and it's a little more interesting when someone can just 
by themselves or with some other one or two other people just build something and they don't have to have like, you know, it's not like mom and dad's bless them with their approval. You know, it's like you just do it, you know, just make it happen. Um, but so uh, let me ask you this then. Okay. So what year was this? I mean, this, cause you know, the market, you know, when everything crashed, I mean, it was really hard. The market went to crap and it was hard to get a job. And I'm just curious, like, you know, how were you supporting yourself and, and, and um, your family after those companies crashed? And you said you retreated to your bedroom. I mean, so how did, how did that whole thing take place? Yeah, I mean, the good news is it happened when I really didn't have a family, which is okay. um, very liberating. And, you know, it, and actually, now that you say it, I feel a little bit like a pretender now. I mean, in, in the sense that it's, I'm not sure how much my risk aversion today was caused by lessons learned and how much of it is just a different reality that I exist in. I mean, today I exist in a reality where I have children and I have a wife and, you know, um, I just want to make sure that I don't screw things up very badly. So I guess, you know, it's a function of my age and my circumstance that I'm a little less risk averse than someone who uh, was 27 or 26 and didn't have a family to worry about. Um, but, um, yeah, so I, I, I really did, you know, I call it a, a retreat, but I, I, you know, futzed around with a couple of ideas and I started this thing and, and actually it was, it was never, I mean, when collective2.com started, it was not a huge thing, but it was always, even from the earliest days, um, it, it generated, you know, small amounts of cash that, that, that grew into something that became something worth really devoting my full time to. But it took a, a series of years to do that. And to answer your question, you know, I think the site formally started, and by that I mean, you know, we have some sort of uh, dusty incorporation papers in my closet somewhere that say 2001. But I think it really kind of um, began to be a public site in around 2003. Um, and that's where people started to hear of it more. And, and became, it became more of a success at that point, too. Well, what... What sparked the idea? So, I mean, you're obviously familiar with algorithmic trading, and I mean, were you day trading yourself or something? I mean, what what sort of, I don't know, it was was the very specific spark that said, "I'm going to build a site to do this." Yeah. Oh, that's a good question, and and actually, I think this is a really the answer I'm about to give is probably a fairly common one. I mean, it is true that I had some, I, I think of it as fairly peculiar uh, personal knowledge about. Um, you know, again, trading systems or algorithms applied to trading. Uh, and I, in fact, wanted to uh, create a, uh, I, I spent a lot of time, you know, back in my bedroom uh, studying things like genetic algorithms or, or just uh, automated processes for finding algorithms that would work. Um, you know, I have to say, I, I was disappointed in my search. I spent a lot of time uh, trying to come up with what is really effectively a holy grail. You know, it's, it's everyone's dream to use a computer to make money uh, while you don't actually do anything. That's, that's a terrific business if you can do it. So I spent a lot of time pursuing that, and I never actually could find the, the holy grail. But what I did find was that, gosh, I really wanted a way to, to take the results of my work and make it public in a way that was, you know, objective and verifiable. So the very first thing that Collective 2 was was just a site where if you had a trading system, you could um, call your trades in real time, essentially come to the website and say, you know, okay, I hereby declare that I, I think we should buy IBM right now or we should sell so like IBM. Proving, proving yourself. That's right. And it was a trading record that was online that anyone could go to and, you know, assuming you 
believe the trustworthiness and objectivity of the platform of, of Collective 2, then you could come to the site and see everyone's trading records and then, and then make decisions about what to do with those. Now, you know, when I started, it was pretty bare bones and there wasn't much you could do with that information. I mean, you could come to the site and say, um, oh, uh, Jason Roberts has a great trading system. And then you really couldn't act on that information very much. But now, you know, what, what, where the magic is, is that now you can uh, effectively take that information and apply it to your brokerage account. That's where I think once we added that capability, which we call auto trading in our little lingo, that made the site really take off and a lot of, it, it really generated a lot of enthusiasm and interest. So for example, I'm looking on the homepage and Euro 30 has, is up 145% in the last 90 days. So if I, can I just as, as, as any person subscribe to E-Trade and then hook into this and it will automatically trade? And if it does automatically trade, how can we be sure that the sales will be placed and that the sales will happen at the same time, at right, the correct right. time? Exactly? So there's a couple of different questions there. And, and this actually will segue into another, <laughs> another interesting topic, which is that this is a business that's really highly regulated. I mean, the, all financial services businesses are. So I want to answer this in a careful and thoughtful way and make sure I don't say anything wrong. And then maybe later we can talk about what, what that means to be in a, a business that's regulated. But, but to answer your question, um, what you see on the website is hypothetical trading record. And what does that mean when I say hypothetical? Well, what it really means effectively is that there's no single trading account that looks exactly like the record you see on the site. There's a lot of people that in that particular system that you mentioned, there are actually a lot of people that are trading that in a real brokerage account. But you know how it is. I mean, some people get billed, uh, well, sorry, that's a, that's a trading term. Some people, when they issue an order to buy uh, the euro, for example, they'll get the price uh, 1.32, and some people will get the price 1.33, and some people will be trading it at a very large quantity, and some people at a small quantity. So, so what you're seeing on the Collective 2 is a hypothetical model account. Now, that being said, uh, we, because our, our, our auto trading technology is really nifty in the sense that when you, you know, Jason or Justin, turn on auto trading in a retail brokerage account, uh, we actually get fed back the information from the broker, and we actually learn like what did Jason, what price did he get when he was when he bought the euro? What price did Justin get? And we factor that all in, and we come up with a, a an actual volume weighted average price from real life brokerage accounts when when there are real life brokerage accounts attached to that trading system. So really, when you can even you know it's a little bit arcane, but you can even drill down into that trading system on the website today, and you can see who filled, who got what price at what broker. It's really interesting. You can see which brokers give you the best price and things like that. So to answer your question in a way that uh, won't get me thrown in the clink, um, you know, there's, uh, what you're seeing is a, is a hypothetical record. And, and of course, you know, this is the nature of the business and it needs to be stated that of course, you know, it's really great to know about the successful trading systems after the fact, but of course, the secret to life is finding those systems before the, before the gains happen, right? So, so you know, uh, you want to make sure that you get in, on, you get in before, before the thing runs up and you get out before it runs down. That's, that's the key. Um, I want to get more into the, um, the actual technology of it, but I want to start at the beginning. Um, so when you built the very first version, I mean, I'm assuming you built it yourself. I'd like to hear a little bit about what your first sort of, forays into the uh the development of the site were 
Yeah, well, I I knew programming as a I was a self-taught programmer from the time I was, you know, 11 or 12 years old. I I screwed around with the old Apple II computer and things like that. And and so, you know, I I knew programming in an informal way. I'd never really took any courses in school. Uh, and then I decided I really wanted to build a website. So I, I went to a bookstore and, and, and decided I needed to figure out how to build a website. And I just decided I would build it in, in Perl, which was the language of choice at that particular moment in time that I decided to build the website. Now, in hindsight, uh, I'm, not, I'm not really so happy that, that everything on, on my site is, is written in Perl. But but you know that's that's basically the the platform and language we chose and and so um I learned Perl and and I started out being a really bad Perl programmer and um <laughs> I've grown to be uh, a modestly okay programmer but just in you know I I would definitely say you know to anyone who's listening to this who's either an entrepreneur or thinking of being an entrepreneur um definitely being able to program a little bit is really really helpful I, in fact I I, I don't I don't know how you could possibly start a technology or a software company or a website company and, and, and think of yourself as in charge of that company if you, if you can't program a little bit. So, so I, did, I did learn on the job, and there was a very high learning curve. Uh, but ultimately, um, you know, I became good enough to, to make the technology work and to work with people that were much better than me at programming. That's, that's the other key, of course. How, far, how long did you work alone before you had anyone else uh, start helping you out with the technology? Oh my God! Years and years. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I think um, uh, you know now uh, the company. I guess you could loosely call the company uh, some a company of. It's still very, quite small. I mean, you you could loosely say we have about six people working for us full time. Okay. Um, okay. uh, but but my first um, full time um, colleague was hired um, only a few years ago. I think two and a half years ago. So there was quite a few years when uh, I didn't really work with anyone full time on the company. Now, now that being said, you know, one of the things I, I did do, which I'm, I'm pretty happy about is that, um, you know, we, we, we opened up the, I think of collective two as a platform and an ecosystem. So I was able to give other companies and other entrepreneurs who were the same size as me read that as tiny, uh, mm -hmm. the ability to kind of plug into our little ecosystem and try to make money. And, and that's a, that's also something I'm, you know, I just fell into that model and it was mostly accident, but I'm, I'm very glad I did it because I met my partner through that, um, through that method. You know, I just basically, uh, found a guy who wanted to build software on top of collective two. And, uh, we worked together really well over the course of many years and we, we eventually became partners in the business. So, um, uh, he's one of the people that I work with every day, but, but I found him, you know, as another kind of micro independent software developer, just like me who wanted to build some stuff for collective Two. So you actually offered him some ownership in the business and said, and, and as opposed to just, um, you know, a, a, a compensation. Yeah, that, uh, it, well, <laughs> I, I, all these answers are, are kind of, uh, I, I sound like I'm going to be hemming and hawing and, and making it more complicated than it is. But, but the part of the, um, complication is the, is the regulatory, um, nature of the business, we actually have to set up different companies for different purposes in this business. You can't 
do everything in one company for, for all sorts of obscure reasons that will make your eyes glaze over. So it was actually a convenient way to migrate towards more of a partnership arrangement. Um, uh, so to, to, to make that a little more clear and, and, and just cut through all the gobbledygook, you know, essentially when, when it was time to add a brokerage arm to our business, uh, he was my partner in that brokerage arm. Okay. Uh, that's how we, that's how we arrange. Yeah. See, the reason we like, I mean, we tend to like to dig into the details on the show, both from the business perspective, as well as a technology perspective, because our, I mean, that's the way Justin and I think, I mean, we're both, I guess we consider ourselves entrepreneurs as well as technologists. And I think a lot of our listeners are. So <laughs> that's why we dig into them because I think that's, that's where a lot of the interesting stories lie. But, um, so along those lines, you know, you, you said you opened up the platform and this is, this is kind of early days for this. Um, so how did you provide, I mean, what was sort of your, your first few steps in, in doing this and how did it progress of, of allowing people to upload or push their, their trading signals, their buy and sell signals to collective two? Right. Well, the very first thing we did, which was, which was a smart idea. And again, when I say it's a smart idea, I, I really need to say I, it was stumbled into really accidentally. I mean, well, the first thing we did was we allowed people to, uh, we, we opened up an API to just automate your signal entry. Well, okay. you know, so what that allowed people to do was um, write software to place their trades as opposed to sit there as human beings and, and type in their trades. It doesn't sound like much, but but in this very particular vertical space, you know, trading, um, the automation is key, right? I mean, you you want to you want to automate as much as you can. So that was the first thing we did, and that allowed a lot of people to begin to use the site, and it also kind of got me out of the business of of UI design. I mean, uh, let me say it a different way. It it made it so that if you hated my UI and my design decisions, you didn't have to suffer every day through them. <laughs> You could just kind of, you know, ping a, an API. Uh, that was the, really the first thing. And then, and then the second thing we did that, I, you know, I think is kind of an interesting idea that I'm, I'm, I'm happy about as well was this, this idea that we wanted to make it so that uh, we, we, you could actually execute trades through a broker. Uh, you know, in other words, it was great that you could see results on Collective2, but, but once you saw those results, how could you how could you get those trades into a brokerage account? And, and, and the answer I had at the time was I have no freaking idea. So, <laughs> so yeah. that I took that answer and I said, well, let's let someone else figure it out. And instead of, um, kind of <laughs> figuring punt. it out, we, we developed <laughs> yeah. an API that allows, you know, a very simple, I guess, you know, now, now my, my technological ignorance is going to shine through. I guess it would, it would be called a rest interface today of some kind, but, but, you know, I never thought of it like that. I just thought of it as, oh, I'll just let people use a URL to to access um, functionality on the site. So we so we opened up what we called our auto trading API, and that allowed people to really write effectively commercial software programs that they could sell to the Collective Two community uh, that would interface to the broker of their choice. So you know, the broker of a lot of people's choice at that time uh, and still at this time is interactive brokers. It's a mm -hmm. popular broker among technical traders and technologists just because they're so technology-focused. Uh, and so we got a couple of guys writing interfaces to that broker. We had a few people writing interfaces to another broker. And ultimately, it became fairly clear to me that that was really the key area of the business uh, that we had, it, we had to offer internally as well. So we, be, so we offered that too. So if I want to auto-trade, I have to use the website 
and I also have to use third-party software to do the auto trades, or can I do it all through the website? Right. So, so early on, pre I don't know, two thousand and five, say you had to basically, if you wanted to auto trade, you had to go to the website. You had to say, okay, I like um, trading system number one, two, three, four. I want to apply that to my brokerage account. You would have to take a third-party piece of software. You'd have to turn it on, run it on your PC. And just keep it running like all day long. And, and basically that 30, third party piece of software would connect to our servers and, and say, uh, what trades do I need to place? Okay, let me go place the trades. Okay, here's the execution information from the broker. And that would get reported back and forth. It was almost like, think of it as a trade or information proxy sitting between the broker and Collective2's website. Uh, was, that trade, was that Trade Bullet? Yes, Trade Bullet was um, one of the winners in that space. And, um, uh, but, but, you know, those are good programs. Um, they're not for everyone because, you know, as I describe them, I'm sure you can understand why it sounds a little bit clunky. Like no one really likes to have software running on their PC. So we ultimately have evolved more to uh, what we call a server based solution. So nowadays, uh, Justin, if you wanted to auto trade, all you have to do is come to the website and say, I want to trade this system, and you, you can choose which broker you work at and type in your account number right in the website, and it'll ask you a question like, how big do you want to make the trades? Do you want to have any sort of automated stop losses? You know, different questions, and then you hit click, you know, set up, and boom, the trades start getting placed. You can go turn off your computer. You don't have to be logged into the website. Everything happens automatically from, you know, server to server connected, from a server to server connection. So it just on the surface of it, and this is my pure naivety, it just seems like free money, right? I just I just sign up to you, I set up a brokerage account, click go, and all of a sudden I start making money. Well, it's free money for someone. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's usually not the trader for whom it's free money. I mean, in all candor, um, this is another interesting slash depressing aspect of this business. Um, the most, the majority of people do not make money when they auto trade. Uh, well, frankly, the majority of money do not make money trade. Uh, the majority of people do not make money trading. Uh, auto trading is is just one way of of not making money. Um, and <laughs> and the reason for that, the reasons for that vary. Um, but primarily, I mean, uh, people make bad choices. And and it's a you know I, I just again I just in the in the interest of of being vaguely interesting, uh, I, 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 I uh, it is a little bit personally depressing to to run a website. I, I think it's pretty analogous to, to being involved in, say, uh, either the cigarette industry or maybe a, Las, maybe a better thing is a Las Vegas casino. You know, I, I do know that there are people who enjoy going to Las Vegas and going to a casino and putting down money, and, and, and they know they're going to lose, but, uh, well, it's, it's just entertainment, and they walk away at the end of that weekend and say, ah, I enjoyed myself, and I'm glad I, I lost that 100 bucks or whatever it was. Uh, there are those people, and those are probably good customers to have, uh, but there's also another set of customers who come to Las Vegas and make really bad choices. And similarly, you know, at Collective Two, there are a lot of people who come to Collective Two and make really bad choices. Now, you know, it's in my interest as an entrepreneur, as a business owner, as someone who wants this website to be around long term. Um, it's in my interest to help people make good choices. Um, at least that's what I tell myself, and I and I operate that way. Uh, so, for example, you know, when you go to the website and you look at um, one of these trading systems, every trade has risk ratings associated with it. You can see uh, we run Monte Carlo simulations on all the systems so that you can see um, 
uh, equally likely outcomes. We allow people to write reviews of trading systems, and many of the reviews are abysmal. I mean, reviews that say things like, stay away, I lost all my money on this system, do not trade it. And even so, uh, which is, you know, take this for what it's worth, it's bizarre. <laughs> even after you see these reviews and even after you see the big red risk ratings on a system, people still choose to trade that system in quantities that probably they shouldn't. Now, let me just say something, which is that there are all sorts of reasons to take large risks. I mean, the, you know, like everything in life, risk and reward are usually um, commensurate. And so there could be times when it's perfectly sensible for someone to choose a risky trading system. Um, and I, I like those customers, and, and I, I, I want to have them continue to come to Collective 2. But there are also times where it's really not a sensible thing to do. And so... I, I, despite, you know, as much warnings as we, as many warnings as we put on the site and as many tools as we, we offer to help people not make bad choices, people still somehow make, a lot of people make bad choices. And that's a, that's a, that's something I live with every day and think about a lot. Like, am I doing the right thing on the site? Am I, do I need to make it even more frightening, uh, you know, in the, <laughs> on the warning pages right. and things like that. And, and, you know, it's something I, I try to, because again, it's not just, ethics and morality and government regulation. It's also just, you know, it's just good business. I mean, you, you don't want to see a customer come and, and then disappear in a month. It costs a lot of money to get someone to come to your website. And so when they leave after a month, that's, that's not so great. Yeah. I wish I had this good rule. Well, there's the idea of risk capital. So, and a lot of people assume the risk capital is of their savings, which is like maybe the risk capital is 10% of your savings or something. So, if you got a million dollars in the bank, maybe you'd have 900,000. I mean, you'd risk 100,000 of that and leave 90% into in, you know, CDs and very conservative type of bonds or something like that. Um, I mean, do you have any thoughts on what is a reasonable percentage of somebody's net worth that they should even risk on something like this? Well, no. I mean, I, I think it, it really is a function of, of where you are on the socioeconomic scale and how much you have in the bank period. I mean, I don't think, uh, you know, I'm not a financial advisor and I don't put myself out as one. I'm just a software programmer. Um, and um, uh, so, so take, my, take my advice with, with a grain of salt. I mean, it's worth zero. But, you know, my sense is that, um, uh, well, all trading is risky, and it's really hard to make free money. I mean, that's just, if it was easy to, to turn on a computer or go to a website and make free money, everyone would do it, and everyone would be rich and be driving around in a Maserati and, and swimming in their backyard swimming pool. And you look around the world, and that's just not the case. So clearly, um, the truth is it's really hard to make money. So that being said, uh, I, don't know what the, I don't know what the appropriate percentage is. I certainly think that... Um, even, you know, even if you decide, if you think about it rationally and you decide I have X thousand dollars of quote risk capital, even that needs to be, you, you need to really think about what to do with that. I mean, sure, it's, it's risk capital, but is it crazy capital? I mean, because uh, some of these trading systems on the site are, are, are really gambling. Or re well, let me say it this way. They're really very risky. They might turn out to be really great, but uh, the probability is that they're not going to be. So, I, you know, I, I've said a lot of negative things about the website, and I and I've and I've emphasized um, that it, that trading is really risky. I think that if you work hard at it, if you go to the site, collective2.com, and you 
you search around the, the databases and look at the systems. I think you can find systems that are appropriate for you know, your financial circumstance, probably, if you look carefully and do the work. But, but certainly, if you see something that looks too good to be true, I, I would caution you that it probably is. You kind of are, uh, this is something we've talked a little bit on the show, but I, I, I sort of think of um, coming up with an algorithmic trading system that can outperform you know, your buy and hold or your, uh, your index fund. It's almost like the same kind of difficulty it is to, uh, say, do a web startup, which is that most people are going to fail. It's not that it's not doable. It's just that it's really hard. So if you, if you, if you talk to 20, if, there, if you say, okay, well, 5% or maybe 10% of the people who really give it a shot succeed. Um, and I think those are numbers are kind of right from what I hear about trading. 10%, 5 or 10% are very successful, and 5 or 10% tread water and everybody else loses money. And I think that's kind of similar to web startups. So, and, and it's also another one we've talked about. Another similarity is like losing weight. You know, if you talk to 20 people who tried to lose weight and you talk to them three years later and say, did you keep the weight off? It's like, yeah, maybe 5 or 10% did. And I'd be just curious what your thoughts are on the, I don't know, the difficulty or the possibility of, of consistently outperforming the market. Well, I think, you know, you're really getting into something that, and I'm, and I'm happy to get into it. It's really the nature, we're getting into the, the ontological nature of, of trading here. And, and what I would say to your, your, your point is this, that it's probably not really hard to beat the market, but it comes at a cost. So when you say beat the market, what do you mean exactly? And, and usually what people mean is uh, at the end of the time period that I'm worried about, did I make more than the market made? Um, and the reality is that you can probably figure out some ways to do that um, at highly you know, probable, uh, at, at high probabilities. But that comes at a cost. And what the cost typically is, is, is a cost of uh, drawdowns and, and, and a cost of margin and capital needs during the middle of that period. So just to take a, put this into simpler terms, you know, um, if you look at Collective 2, there are all sorts of systems where uh, the results are better than, you know, we, we generally graph the system performance against the S&P. And if you look at some of those graphs, you know, a lot of those systems end up better than the S&P after a year. But then you got to kind of look at the chart a little more closely. And what you'll see is that during that period, there are, there are times when the trading system lost, oh, I don't know, 30%, 40% of its capital. Sure, it ended up better than the S&P. But, you know, the thing you really always have to ask yourself is, um, can I really live through that 30% drawdown, 40% drawdown? If I lost half my money, would I really be willing to stick through it? And the reality is that most people aren't. So I think what, what people really want, the holy grail of trading is the ability to outperform the market without, having, without suffering any sort of drawdown of capital. I mean, that's really hard to do. I've heard stories, and, and I think we all have, about uh, high-frequency trading shops that, that do do that. Um, so I think it is possible uh, for people that have the sufficient technological wherewithal and business infrastructure wherewithal. But for the average guy, and, and higher than average guy, the guy who sits around with a, with a fast internet connection and a fast computer and even some programming knowledge, I think you can beat the market, but you have to be really willing to lose uh, for a couple of uh, months a year or even for years at a time. I mean, it's, it's great to wake up uh, five years from now with more money than than had you just put it in a, in a Vanguard uh, ETF or, or a, a mutual fund. 
But- yeah. So like if yeah, so if you had like a hundred. Let's say you had a hundred thousand in savings. You know, if if you went down and you lost forty grand, I mean, you'd be flipping out, right? You'd, mm. you'd you would you'd about ready to throw up, and your wife would be pretty upset at you and everything else, right? But if you if you only risk ten thousand, you say, all right, well, ninety thousand is in you know an index fund and some bonds, and I put ten thousand. If you're down four grand, you're like, eh, kind of sucks, but you know, it's not going to kill you. You could probably stomach it. So it seems like a lot of it has to do with what percentage of your net worth you're really, you know. Yes, yes. But there's one other aspect to it. I mean, it has a little bit to do with what percentage of your net worth. And it also has to do with your personality. I mean, if you if you're the kind of person that oh, excuse me, I'm, I'm, I hope my audio is OK. If you're the kind of person who can turn on a trading system and then maybe not look at it for a year. I mean, you, you want to look at it to make sure that technically it's working right. But what I mean to say is, let me say it a different way. If you're the kind of person who has to log into your brokerage account every day to see, did I gain 1%? Did I lose 0.7%? Did I gain 0.6%? Uh, if you're looking every day, th- that, that attitude isn't going to work. I mean, as much as you tell yourself it's, it, it's only 10% of your capital, you're going to give up or you're going to change in midstream or whatever. I think the successful traders are those people who, as you, as you say, Jason, who, who only invest a, a small enough amount that they don't care if they lose it all. That's great. And number two, they're not really... They're not sitting there every day worrying about it. I think that's probably the recipe for success, if there is any recipe for success in this business. Just just set it and forget it. And I think yeah, well, if you can do that, that's great. There's a there's a um, you know common term which is uh, our common uh, sort of saying, which is that scared money is lost money, right. and scared money is money that you really can't afford to lose. Um, so I think that that's definitely um, kind of the case. Well, okay. What um, I want to ask you a little bit about the trading specifically, um, if you don't mind. So, what um, what percentage of your trading is sort of end of day trading versus uh, more high frequency? Not, not high frequency, meaning that's like market making in and out milliseconds, but sort of intraday trading. You know, systems that are in and out. You know, five, ten, twenty times a day. Right. Um, to answer your question, um, when when you say what percentage, I'll, I'll tell you that. You know, we have systems of both types, um, and I can tell you what attracts more people, uh, yes. and then I'll tell you which is more successful in the broker. When I look at people's brokerage accounts, what okay. attracts more people is are those systems that trade more frequently. Uh, what ends up being more successful ultimately for people's uh, brokerage accounts uh, are the longer term systems. Uh, if, if you know of the systems that are successful for any period of time, they tend to be longer term, and yet uh, people tend to choose the shorter term. And I believe that is sort of a Las Vegas effect. I think that people are part of what they're seeking isn't just you know monetary return. I mean, they say they are, but I think part of what they're seeking is excitement. Um, there's a believe me, it's a, it's an amazingly great feeling to to check your computer screen and see that you made money while you are out, um, you know, just driving to the grocery market. I mean, that's great. And I think people love those kind of highs. They are highs. They're, they're like a, they are like a drug. And so I think that people tend to gravitate toward those systems despite the, the, the risks. So that's what I see a lot on Collective 2. What, um, in t- well, okay, I guess uh, the next thing I'd ask you is, are, are you currently developing systems, or, do you, or did you completely get out of writing systems yourself after you started building Collective 2? I, I just completely got out of writing systems. I, I'm not, I, I think the, 
you know, I'm trying to analyze the reasons for that as I, as I tell you that answer. I think the real reason is that, uh, you know, running this company is, is incredibly time consuming and, 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 and really, frankly, very personally stressful often. Uh, it's, you know, this is, I'll just complain for a second because no one else really cares about me other, other than <laughs> it, Texting is, cares. You know, out of all the software businesses you could start, I mean, a software business that does automated trading is, is, has got for other people, not even for yourself has got to be the most stressful business in the world. I mean, I, I feel like that often, uh, because you know, mistakes and, and everyone makes programming mistakes or technology mistakes and or there are mistakes that are made that aren't even your mistakes but they somehow affect people those kinds of things are you know they're they're nightmares and so you 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 know you i live in and breathe this company every day and you die a little inside every time the smallest thing goes wrong so uh that's really stressful and that kind of crowds out all the other possible things you might want to do in the trading system space like starting a system i mean i I do have dreams of it because I, I think like I might have learned something over the last eight or nine years of doing this, but I have not had the opportunity to put it into practice. Generally speaking, with regard to Collective 2 and how, what you've put into the website over the last few years, I think some of our listeners would be interested to know lessons you've learned regarding you know, conversions, um, getting higher conversions, marketing different things that you've done to make the actual business more successful? What, what, what have been the biggest lessons you've learned to oh, build yeah. your business well, as a website? I, I love talking about stuff like this because this is really what I, I mean, this is my, this is the part I enjoy most about the business is, is thinking about the business. I'm only a, a modestly competent programmer. So, so some of the things that I've learned and some of the things that we've done and some lessons that I'd like to impart to um, the listeners are, are this. First of all, you know, when I, when, I started the business. Um, I really gave it a lot of thought about what the sustainable barriers to entry were for the business. I mean, you know, and it's something every, again, if, if anyone is listening and thinking of being an entrepreneur or starting a technology company, uh, just making the next uh, great social widget or whatever, whatever the new hotness is today, uh, ain't going to cut it because someone will make it better. And um, you're just bank, you're gambling that you're going to get bought by a bigger company. And that's your, that's your success. Um, you need to uh, uh, build a business that has true, you know, sustainable barriers. And the best kind of businesses, of course, are businesses with, you know, what, what business school people think of as network effects. Businesses where uh, the more people that are on the platform, the more valuable the platform becomes. So that's something we, I, I you know, that was my business school days, um, uh, my lessons coming back. I, I, I tried very hard to think about Collective 2 as a platform that could be uh, more valuable the more people that came to it. And so the implication of that was that I spent a ton of money on advertising. Every dollar I could get my hand on, I, I spent on all sorts of advertising. And ultimately, I settled on Google AdWords as, as the most practical uh, advertising channel because, well, for all sorts of reasons. I mean, one, one reason is, you know, it's obviously easier to track success or failure on a very micro level. And also, uh, one thing that you don't really think about, uh, that people don't talk about a lot, but you think about it as the entrepreneur, one thing that's nice about Google is you can make very small decisions day by day. You don't have to commit to anything on a big, on a, on a big package. So, you know, when you're doing print advertising, you basically have to be willing to put down $5,000, $6,000, $10,000 
to to commit to that print advertising, which doesn't sound like a lot to you know guys that come from VC funded companies. But when you're you know when you're bootstrapping, it it is significant. It, it's a it's a mm-hmm. it's an amount you have to think about. Whereas Google, you can say you know what I'll spend a hundred dollars a day, and that turns out to be much more over the course of the of the period. But you can sort of finance it that way. So. I spent a ton of money on Google, and, and I should say something else that I spent and my colleagues spent and, and the people that, that work at Collective 2 have spent a ton of people time and hours and programming efforts on building tracking tools, you know, in-house tracking uh, and infrastructure and tools that allows us to understand where customers are coming from and, and how much customers are worth and who's worth what. And now, after telling you all this, let me share with you the most startling results that I have ever come up with may i yeah, absolutely this is the uh the most important part of the show i guess dramatic, yeah. dramatic build-up so and this is the payoff for everyone who stuck through the first part of the show hardy words of commendation thank you so um uh yeah so what i did was i spent about eight years of this business um paying google money and I kept tracking uh, where people were coming from and where my revenue was coming from and where my margin was coming from. And, you know, it was driving me crazy. I was making a lot of, well, not a lot, but Collective 2 was making money that was a significant amount of money. And I could not figure out where it was coming from because I was building all these tracking systems for Google and, um, and, and every other online system that I could, uh, every other online channel that I could market through. And, and, and yes, I would find some people were coming from Google and, and, but it just wasn't right. There was like the, the majority of people were not coming from anywhere. It was the most <laughs> bizarre thing. So I, I lived with that, that, uh, par- paradox for about three years. And all through those three years, I would hire consultants and marketing experts and people who would help me try to understand it better and these are bright guys who are good at the space and they helped me try to understand it better. And I built even better tools and better track. And ultimately, uh, I came to the conclusion that my tracking was not wrong. My, my technology was not wrong. The stuff I had built to figure out where people were coming from was not wrong. It was just simply that I was throwing money away on Google. And by throwing it away, what I mean to say is I was, built, I was paying for traffic that never converted into margin dollars. Um, and I, I guess, you know, it took, I, I mean, I'm almost ashamed to admit it, you know, on a, on a, if this is a show about being a technology entrepreneur at all, I'm almost ashamed to admit it because I feel really stupid saying it. I, I was really stubborn and I didn't want to admit it to myself. I literally for years was, was just taking money and like flushing it down the toilet. Um, that's what it feels like now. And, um, I, I just broke the habit. I, I said to myself, if I can't prove that a dollar being spent on AdWords or whatever the, the channel was is going to represent more than a dollar of net present value margin dollars, I'm not going to spend it anymore. And I just stopped. Um, and, and, and what happened was that traffic, you know, that the, the Google uh, analytics reports definitely showed a reduction to some degree. So to a significant degree, I should be honest, uh, in traffic. Um, over that period of time, but um, business was unaffected in terms of who was converting, who was paying me. So I still do have a bit of a uh, a bit of a mystery, but I, I think I'm getting closer to solving it. The mystery is if these people aren't coming from Google, where the hell are they coming from? Um, but uh, I've at least solved it enough to be able to say, you know what, I've broken the the Google habit, 
Uh, I felt like, you know, a crack addict who's going cold turkey. I'm not going to, you know, spend money just to see my traffic go up. That's silly. And now I, I, I don't. And so that was a big revelation to me. And it really was a revelation that, that came to me in the last, say, nine to 12 months. And uh, things have been... Has there been, um, has there been anything on the site, like, for example, have you done any A-B testing or made any changes or put widgets in certain parts of a page that have massively increased sales or conversions for you? Anything like that? Yeah, well, uh, those are good questions. We spent <laughs> very recently, even in the last two months, we've been spending a lot of time building, uh, I don't know what they're called, back office tools, something like that, to help manage things like A-B testing and variation testing on a way that, uh, well, let me, say, let me back up and say we're a really weird company. I'm talking to you from um, my, my home office, um, and I have, an, um, I have a single employee who works in my house with me in the basement, and then the rest of us, you know, there may be uh, four or five other people, depending on the time of month, whatever, are all over the world. Like they're, they're full-time people that work out of their homes in California, in Mexico, in Canada, in Czechoslovakia, in, in Czech Republic. And so, um, so that, that presents an, a, a infrastructure challenge in terms of um, site security and just plain infrastructure. Like, like how do you do A-B a testing in a way uh, and that, oh, it also implies, by the way, that our marketing is often outsourced. You know, we'll hire a consultant to run a marketing campaign or to test um, something, some new idea. So we had to build, or maybe maybe we just sat there and reinvented the wheel, and all this is, you're, you know, you're just rolling your eyes and saying, well, this is obvious. All you need is product X. This will take care of it for you. But, but we didn't know about any product X, so we spent a lot of time building um, infrastructure to allow us to have remote people test different stuff out from uh, out of from offsite on a on a low risk way. So yes. So to answer your question, we have tested different variations of internal pages in the website, external you know landing pages, things like that. We haven't. I, I've never. I haven't come up with that. There's never been a case where I found something that just increased conversions by sixty percent or something. Um, but that's not. That doesn't mean it can't happen. We haven't. We haven't done it as much as I'd like. We have found things where conversions have been increased by 9% or 10%, that sort of order of magnitude, which is still, you know, it's still worth it and significant and we like it. But, um, uh, but you know, yeah, I'd love, to, I'd love to find that magic thing. And then the other thing I would just say to anyone listening to this that's really interesting is your, uh, your, whatever your hypotheses or suppositions are about what's going to work and what's not are probably wrong. I found that more, than, more, than, uh, more often than I'd like. Like, um, uh, like my colleague, uh, Matt, who works with me will say something like, we should run a test of a variation that says this. And I'll just kind of internally roll my eyes and say, he's crazy. That'll never work. It's obviously a stupid idea, but okay, let's test it and we'll test it. And it'll, and just, you know, the page you think will never work works better. I mean, that happens more often than I'd like to admit. So, so definitely, um, you know, whatever, Whatever infrastructure you're using to test, even if it's not like sophisticated, even if it's just randomly showing different HTML, uh, definitely try it out and don't 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 guess beforehand what's going to work and what's not because you're probably wrong. Well, what do you attribute that to? I mean, how is it? Because I hear that a lot. I mean, you hear that over and over and over. People writing blog posts about tests. You're wrong. You're going to be wrong. You're. But how is it that we're always wrong about how we as people are going to interpret things and act and, and what we're going to act on? Oh, <laughs> you have I, enough. You have an idea on that? I do. I, I know exactly. I will tell you the answer. You ready? The answer <laughs> yeah, is, let's hear it. <laughs> no, the answer is you spend every day of your life thinking about this shit. 
I mean, this is your life, whatever it is, if it's collective two, if it's, if it's texting, if it's, if it's, uh, you know, your entrepreneurial companies that you're, that you're, you're living and breathing every day. So you have this, this infrastructure, this mental infrastructure around you and your decision-making that, that makes you decide things and know things that, that most normal human beings don't know. I mean, everything you've lived and breathed for the past six months, the guy who's coming to your website doesn't know and doesn't care about, you know, so so it's very hard to, you know, we, I think this is a, a, probably a fairly common psychological problem with human beings, which is that we think we're, we know a lot more than we do. We think we're much smarter than we are. And we think we're really good at making predictions that don't often pan out. And so uh, that's what happens. You know, you're bringing to bear all these, all this baggage about your company and you, you think people should know things. So, you know, just to give you an idea, uh, a, a specific idea, you know, we, we tested a web uh, a front page. Well, actually, I'll just tell you the 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 front the front page that's running for most people now on Collective Two. I mean, I I don't know exactly which one you guys will will get when you come to the site for the first time, but probably uh, if you're in the ninety percent randomization of the test, you're going to get the standard front page, and it has a lot of like weird icons and text and. And frankly, I thought that thing was a disaster. I mean, I looked at that. I said that'll never work. No one will ever stick around to read through that text because, you know, I came to it with this idea that people are lazy and they don't want to read. And, um, you know, it's just too much. It's too busy. They're confused. And I, and that's sort of been my MO about human beings. I guess I have a very dismal notion of what human beings actually are like, uh, but I just think they're really lazy and dumb or, or, or a lot of the people that come to your website. So that's always been, oh, let's design pages for lazy people. You know, what does that mean? Uh, just lots of white. That's my, that's my big design uh, idea of, of the decade. Lots of white space, lots of white space. But it turns out that for whatever reason, um, I don't know why. I mean, people, people didn't share that, that kind of mental worldview and, and this tested better. And that's why most people are seeing it. Wow, that's <laughs> that, that, that's interesting. So when you say this tested better, so you did. So what what did you compare it? Because I'm I'm looking at the page and it's got trading systems community. It's got how much money's been traded in the last seven days. It's got a lot of icons saying free tools for finding a trading system. It's it is as you say a very busy page. What what were the kind of comparison pages and what's and how much better was this one? To answer your question, I don't think any of the pages are pr- particularly good. Um, and, and so, but, but what did we test it against? We tested it against, you know, this notion of let's just strip it down. Uh, let's, let's just have a, you know, I mean, I mean, just different variations of that page, pages with um, much less busyness, pages with just, you know, taking one key idea from that page and just making that the entire page. So, you know, I, I just want to say that we're not like, we're not some superstar testing shop or anything. We, we're, we're just a bunch of hackers in a room trying different stuff. And I'm sure that there's a more disciplined approach that we should take. And that's one of the things I'd really like to, you know, once, once our company can afford it, I would love to hire a full-time person who just focuses on, you know, what I don't even know what to call it, the user experience or, or just understanding the user is probably the way I'd like to think of it. He's not necessarily a guy who designs icons or, or HTML or CSS, but he's a guy who can get into the head of, of our users and try to, to, to be in a sense, their advocate, um, before they they even come to the site. Um, so yeah, so I tried all sorts of things there. We tried all sorts of things and some of them did better than others. And, and often the results were surprising, as I said, were you yeah. testing against 
sorry, sorry, Jason, just my last question. Were you testing against the sales, sale conversions from the homepage, or were you testing against just moving through to the next page? Oh, no, no. I, so I'm, I'm very proud of the fact that what we tested, I mean, I hope, I hope this is the right thing because I'm about to show off about it. Wouldn't it be funny if, it, if I'm about to show off <laughs> something everyone says, you knucklehead? No, I'm very proud of the fact that, you know, we really test against um, long-term financial value of customers. Uh, okay. And, right. and rated cool. in different ways along different, you know, metrics. But essentially, uh, what we care about is, is how much, pro- I mean, it sounds when you say it like this, it sounds kind of gross, but I guess this is the nature of business and it's the way of judging whether you're serving people well or not is, are people willing to pay you enough that you make a profit? Um, so we judge everything against margin, uh, gross margin of the customer across time. And we do, you know, net present value analysis because that's the other, um, uh, I don't, I don't know if it's a peculiarity of my particular business. It might be because one of the things I found about my business, which is unusual is it's a very, uh, I guess sticky is, is not right, the right term, but, but when we get a customer, they tend to be part of our, they, they stick around for a really, really long time. Like I tried to run an analysis of when customers disappear and how long it takes for customers to, to churn. And, and I found that, you know, once you're in our database, you just, you just always come back to the site. I don't know why, why that is. It's very hard to, and there are times when you could just leave for six or nine months at a time and then come back. So I guess my, so what that means is it's kind of challenging to understand the success or failure of a, of a let's call it a, a splash page or a landing page or, or even a website, an internal page. It's very hard to understand that right away, um, which is why I think it's important that anyone who's in this kind of business where the relationship with the customer is very long term has some kind of infrastructure available to track these things and measure them over the long term. You know, because if you just if you just track a, um, for who clicks through, uh, you might build the greatest website in the world for to get people to click through to the next page, but that that ain't going to pay the electricity bill, right? One thing I'd like to follow up on a little bit is you talked about these group of customers who came from nowhere, and it's mm-hmm. almost like like the dark matter of uh, your <laughs> user right. conversion process. So, but you never you, you still don't know where they come from. So they come from somewhere. They're just like, there's just a no refer link. They're just, they're just like, they typed it into the address kind of thing. Correct. Is that it? Correct. They, I mean, well, there's a whole set of customers that do have a refer link. And those are customers that type in the word collective two into Google. Right. Um, right. And, then, and, and then they click on the link result. Right. Right. So, so those are people who clearly uh, either, I, I mean, there's, lo- there's lots of ways that could happen. One way is um, they're on a new compute. They, they saw the site through an ad. But then they come, they clear their cookies and then, because, you know, we do non-invasive cookie tracking of people that come just so we know where they come from. Um, but uh, so there's that, that, that possibility that they kind of sit around and clear their cookies all day, which I don't think the general user does. Um, or the other possibility is that they, they, quote, heard about the site somewhere. You know, so where might that happen? That might happen on a forum or, you know, some sort of message thread where there's not a... Um, uh, an a you know an href link in it, but you kind of just read collective two and you and you make a note to type that into your browser and you're on Chrome. So that's maybe. sort of word of mouth then. That essentially yeah, you could I, probably trip it to word of mouth. Right. Although, but but it's not really word of mouth in the sense that like I I mean I totally agree with you that that it is the dark matter and it's really worth it is kind of worth hypothesizing where they're from so you can figure it out because just to use an example like if they really if these customers that turn out to be great customers for you do come from other uh, message boards or forums in the space that, that 
that talk about you. I mean, well, if you could figure that out, it would probably be worth either, I don't know, buying ad space on those places or, or just being active participants in those communities or maybe starting your own message space and forum that might kind of uh, supersede that one. I mean, I, there's all sorts of possible actions that you could take once you figure it out. But, but right now, we, we really don't know. And it's really, it is strange and mysterious. So do you spend money on advertising at all? Or is it, oh, is yes. it completely? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Okay. I mean, we do, but, but now it's, it's like, I, I just, before I was just, I, I guess the word is profligate with it. I mean, I just go crazy with, with Google. Everything was, um, the theory was that, I mean, look, the business is making money. We've been spending money on Google before. So if it's been working before, let's just keep doing it. Uh, you know, it was sort of this weird causal link that wasn't necessarily there. We were spending money on Google and the business was successful, but it wasn't, B didn't follow from A, um, and so to answer your question, yeah, we we but we're we're much more focused on on the advertising we spend, and um, we just don't we don't we try not to do as much of it. That's all. But do you do, but you but do you still measure the 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 value of it? So if you put an ad in say Active Trader magazine or something like that, I mean, how do you track something like that? Well, print as as you know, I mean, tracking prints a little bit harder than than tracking um you know online ads, but um, right. Uh, but, but yeah, we, we definitely, we do do, um, a limited numbers of just kind of, I guess, what are they called? Banner ads or, or, you know, just sort of, um, content ads. And, right. um, we, and of course we do the keyword ads on the major search engines. We still do do that. Uh, but you know, the budget is just, I, I used to just, you know, I just used to spend a lot of money doing it and, and kind of thinking of it as a long-term investment. Now I spend less money doing it and think of it as, a long-term investment that probably won't pay off. So, how how long did it take um, before Collective Two was making enough money that it could sort of support that you could live off it, that you didn't have to either pull from savings or do freelance work or, or whatever you were doing in the meantime? You know, it it took a it took many years. I, I well, part of it was that um, you know, I, I guess when I think about it, I I wasn't. I wasn't in a real rush for that to happen for all sorts of, you know, personal reasons. And, and so I just kind of built the business without really thinking too much about it. And then suddenly it became really important to me to make it pay for itself for all sorts of equally personal reasons. So, so, um, uh, t- so part of it was, you know, it just was a just gestation period, a natural period that it took a, it took a certain period of time for the site to reach critical mass and become self-supporting where it could, you know, pay for me and pay for some other people. Uh, that it may that may be part of it. And then there was also just another part that you know I just wasn't. It just wasn't the the most important thing in my world at that time. Uh, but when it became an important part of my world, like I have to start making some money on this thing, um, then 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 it happened relatively fast once we we took the steps we needed to do. I mean, I wow. don't know. You know, I, I would just add one really fast thing. I don't know if anyone is listening to this who has a web business or is an entrepreneur or sells software or something like that who is hesitant to either charge money or or thinks that that's risky i mean you know that there was a moment in time when when i literally had to make a decision to start charging for certain aspects of the site that were free before um and that was really a terrifying i I mean obviously i'm only saying something that that's obvious here it was a scary moment and i got a lot of horrible hate mail from people uh saying you know what a what a dope I am for charging money and, and, 
I'm going to, I'm going to go to your competitors. They would check people, you know, are very, um, very eager to write angry emails about right. when, about when, whenever you charge money. But, you know, I mean, you, you just kind of live through that. And the reality is, uh, you got to make money. I mean, someone's got to make money somewhere. So, um, I, I mean, if, if you're hesitant and on the fence about it, I would just encourage you to, to be thoughtful about how you do it and, and go ahead and, and just do it. Yeah. I, it's like, I don't know. It seems like a lot of times it's, it's better to charge earlier. So you don't have that sort of, um, phase transition that can be painful. Like once you, the earlier you charge and the, and the, you're, you're not dealing with a bunch of people who really aren't ultimately your customers and you don't right. have to deal with that. Correct. You know? So it's like char- charge early and charge often. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> I like that. I think that's exactly right. No. Um, so during this period, I mean, how were you supporting yourself? Were you doing freelance work? Were you, did you have a job and, and you would just work on this at night? I mean, how did that? Well, early in the very earliest days, I was doing trading. Um, oh, okay. So that, that was part of how I got to this site. Um, so you, you were successful enough trading that you could actually live off the profits? Well, let me, let me be really candid. There were months when I was successful trading, and there were okay. months when I wasn't. Um, and that was part of the incentive uh, if you will, for, for doing something that was a little bit less stressful. Um, you know, and, um, and the other thing is, you know, I mean, I, I, this is not the ticket to, um, fame and riches, but I, I, you know, I sit around and I write some, uh, novels on occasion and I wrote a a couple of those. And, um, so, you know, I sort of figured it out and, and, um, but now I'm at the point where, um, you know, I most, I mean, Pretty much, it's it's all it's all collective too. So, okay, I, w- I want to jump back to trading for just for a minute because I had a couple questions I didn't get a chance to ask, and then I'd like to maybe ask you about your writing. Um, Justin, is that okay? Or you have any questions on this topic? Because I don't want to just keep jumping back and forth. Um, so you talked you talked a little bit about genetic algorithms and stuff, and and one one interest of mine that that I've had for quite a long time is is machine learning or artificial intelligence and, and trying to apply that to the market. And there's a lot of different, differing opinions of whether that's, whether that's possible or not from a lot of really smart people. They're on both sides of the fence. You have people like Kurzweil and David Fogel on, who have been successful or seem to have been successful using AI. And then you have other people who, um, who you know, would think that's just you know, curve fitting and it's just it's not going to work at all. And I'm curious, have you personally experimented with it and had any success? And in, 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 in talking with all your systems developers, I mean, have you gleaned any, you know, new perspectives on it? Yeah, I mean, now we're getting really micro on trading. And, and so I'll just say this, that I was really fascinated by the notion of gen- genetic algorithms. Well, first of all, I should, I should say this, that the first thing that you figure out about trading systems when you start using them is that there are ones that work. Um, for periods of time and then stop working. So there's this pretty big investment in, in, in finding the ones that work um, that you, you, know, you kind of pay, you pay up front and then you try to reap the benefits and then they stop working. But often they stop working spectacularly and um, uh, often it's not clear they stop working. So, so you have this period of time where they kind of tread water. And, and so the, no, the, the, the idea of, of, of writing a system to write systems is very attractive once you come to this conclusion because then you're you're effectively what you're really developing is a is a automation for automation right a sort of meta automation um, and so I spent a lot of time on on I, I just happened to pick genetic algorithms which they sound fancier or, or 
but but it's really just a it's just really an optimization solution, a method of of ser- of searching a search space that theoretically can be more efficient than uh, brute force. Although, by the way, not not necessarily for all sorts of technical reasons. But but what I found was that um, it didn't work for me. Uh, just to be honest, and and it could just be that I'm just not smart enough to make it work, or I was I was barking up the wrong tree, or or whatever. But what I really found out was that. Um, it was, yeah, it was just a way of, of searching a search space. I suspect that, um, the guys that are really, that the systems that are effective are, and, and the people that are effective have a inherent human knowledge about how markets work. And I don't mean like, I, I should say like, uh, I don't mean guys who have a gut feeling. Oh, I, I, I'm looking at this chart and I think it's going to go up. I, I think that's BS. I don't think anyone has any gut feeling about anything, but I, I think that, there are people who have very um, peculiar and local knowledge about markets, um, about the relationships between derivatives and the underlying contracts, about the way that um, uh, things behave in periods of high volatility. I mean, there's all sorts of ways to slice and dice it, but I think those people were pro- are probably more likely to be successful traders than people that are just brute force searching a search space, right? So okay. whether you do it through an, uh, a genetic optimization or some sort of, I, I mean, I don't even know what the alter, alternative is. Yeah, I was, I was more thinking along yeah. lines of sort of like uh, neural nets or Bayesian right. classifiers or whatever. Things that like you say there's this whole sort of a non-parametric modeling. You don't Because like if you're using genetic algorithms alone, you're sort of like, I have my model. I'm just going to figure out what the inputs are to the model that are yeah. going to make it act you know, the best way. If you have, use like sort of non-parametric model, you say, well, I have this world this universe of potential inputs right which could be quite vast or could be kind of small to 10 or 20 you know things and then you attempt to um you know evolve it or train it or or whatever to whether it learns you know that kind of thing right well let me let me just say one thing about this which is that remember earlier in our conversation we were talking about um uh, what kind of trading systems are, quote, better? Are they the ones that trade frequently? Or are they the ones that, that trade less frequently? Um, and, and, you know, now this is where I, I think the two ideas are, are, are intimately related in, in a way that's not obvious, which is that um, you have a lot more data points um, when, when, you, when you choose a, a, a system that trades a lot. Um, so you have a lot more statistical confidence that what you found is a real thing as opposed to some sort of data artifact, right? So in other words, I mean, I, I, I'm probably saying something that's, that's pretty obvious, but, but if you have a trading system that you develop that only trades three times and is super profitable, you're, you're, you have less confidence that that wasn't just a lucky, a lucky pick, right? If you have a trading system that makes uh, 10,000 trades and it has a very high win rate over a long period of time, well, then you, you're, more, you're more confident. But, but so, so I think that as you... That one of the things that I, I sort of found interesting, it was almost like I, I thought of it a little bit like um, the, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, that, that as you wanted to get more confident about your, 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 your method for picking trading systems, you, you, began to, you, began to, you began to find you had to gravitate towards systems that inherently are unprofitable. The most profitable systems, I suspect, are those systems that trade less frequently. They have less friction, less trading costs, less chance of mistake. You know, they don't react to noise as much. But as you, gra- as you move towards those sorts of systems, you become less certain they're actually working. 
Does that make sense? Right. Yeah. So yeah. that was always like the big, the big thing. And that's really the attractive thing about systems that trade frequently is you can, quote, be more confident in them. But actually, for any trader that's out there, I would, I would posit that the confidence you have in a system is not what you think it should be. I mean, uh, there are probably market regime changes that happen pretty frequently. So a system might be able to make a thousand trades in a period of three months and do really well. Uh, and then suddenly, at the end of those three months, something happens to the market. You know, some 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 discontinuity that changes the regime in the market, and then suddenly the system doesn't work. So the way to really think about systems like that is not that it had a thousand trades, but rather it really only had one trade. It was like the month of July was its trade, effectively. I don't know. If I'm, right, I'm getting right. very boring here. I'm yeah, sorry. yeah, yeah. No, I, I guess I find this interesting. I'm sure some of our, our listeners yeah. are sort of waiting for the next topics. But Thank you. Yeah. so, but I, I totally get. It. They, they need they need to spend a lot of time talking about you know your performance, about how you evaluate systems, how you cut off outliers, and how do you determine well how evenly uh, spaced out are our winners and losers and all that kind of stuff. So, but I'll um I'll move on because I yeah I know. Uh, <laughs> We, we, we don't get too inside baseball on it, but my one last question before I move on to a completely different topic is, or Marcia, my last question about trading is, what are the nature of your customers? I mean, do you have a lot of people who are sort of adv- have advanced degrees in math and physics and sort of quants and approach it from a very, um, uh, I don't know, a sophisticated quantitative perspective versus people who are more uh, low level in terms of like, well, they just basic uh, uh, technical indicators like, you know, the oscillators and moving averages. I mean, do you have any insight into like how that, how your user base clusters? Yeah, I, I have, I have limited insight and only limited insight. I mean, one of the attractive things about collective two, from the perspective of someone who's coming to the site as a, as a system developer is that we really do insulate you from, from no one really knows what your system is. We don't, we don't get to see your code. We don't know anything about what's going on inside your black box. So it's pretty hard to tell, um, you know, who's like really using sophisticated computerized algorithms and who's like just looking at a bird's entrails to, to decide whether to go long or short. (laughs) Um, so, but that being said, um, I do think that, you know, we're, we're actually, we're, that's one of the sort of long run look, projects that we're working on on the site is, is to disclose more and more about who is actually the, the person and what are his credentials um, behind those, those systems. I think that, um, you know, one thing that collect, one way of a look at Collective 2 is it allows people who, I'm, I'm talking about people that are thinking of becoming trading system vendors. It allows people that are outside the, the financial world uh, who don't have the right credentials to, to, to participate in the financial world. And what I think about often is that, you know, who are the guys that, that get jobs at Goldman Sachs, right? Who are the mm-hmm. people that program uh, uh, proprietary trading systems at, at, at hedge funds? Uh, well, I can tell you who they are. Uh, they went to Caltech or, or Stanford or Berkeley or Wharton or Harvard or Yale or whatever they went. But it's a series of, ma- or, or, you know, the Indian Technology Institute. But it, they went to one of 20 places in the world and that's it. Um, because those firms don't, don't care uh, if you didn't go there. They just won't even, they won't even look at you. It's not worth their while. So I, I, I think one of the things that's interesting about Collective 2 is it's a way, uh, it's, I wouldn't call it regulatory arbitrage. I'd almost call it credential arbitrage or something like that. It's a way of allowing uh, people who are, who are cut off from, from the world of finance for all sorts of accidental reasons, like, i.e., they were born in Moscow, 
uh, rather than in Pennsylvania, or, or they just didn't get into the right Indian university, but they're still technically smart and great programmers. It allows them to participate in, in, the, in the world of finance. So that's, I, I think there are quite a few people like that, although it's hard to know for certain what's going on and who they are. Can you stop people from um, creating metasystems based on other people's systems and then selling it through Collective 2? How do you deal with that? Well, there would necessarily be... Remember that um, in order to see signals in real time, uh, you have to pay for them, right? So uh, the idea, I guess what you're saying is it's, it's possible for someone to um, pay for the best systems on Collective 2 and cr- use it to create their own system. Um, that would suffer from some kind of latency, certainly, because you have to get the data and then use it and then push it back out. So I, I, I mean, I, sus- I suppose that's possible. I, I really, you know, there's all sorts of things to worry about um, on Collective 2, and I, 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 I don't think that's the one that's, that's the likeliest thing to worry about. Yeah, I see that happen all the time, that there's all these things that can go wrong, and people oftentimes worry about the things that are just incredibly unlikely, yeah. <laughs> to happen and you get so much so much wasted energy about that um we talk a lot about um one of the things that people worry about which is people stealing your idea and right. the reality is is that i'd like to hear some real individual stories where people had a fantastic idea right. talked about it and then found out someone they knew went and took it and got funded or built some big company <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's not, like, not only that but but any idea that you could possibly quote steal i mean how would yeah. that ever be a sustainable defensible yeah. business right you, yeah. you know so yeah, there's so much. I just like, but people spend so much time worrying about that. It's like I'd love to hear a story. If there, if, I, if we have any listeners who can give us a full story of that, I'd love to hear it because I I feel it's more like a mi- urban myth, you know. It's 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 like, well, I don't want to go swim in the ocean because I don't get my leg bit off by a uh, great white. It's like, well, you know, it has happened, but it's so rare. I wouldn't really worry about it. Just go swimming. Well, the, you know? the kind of thing that really gets stolen is like the iPod. You know, like like you'll get. Fake, uh, fake cheap versions of that uh-huh. kind of thing. The <laughs> I mean, stuff that's really successful will be stolen, but not not something that's just an idea. Right, yeah, that's right. You know, right, because it's like, why are you going to rip off my idea when you can go and try and clone something that's already been proven to be very successful? <laughs> I mean, I know we're getting off topic, but it's just that's just one of those things that people worry yeah, about. We I just, agree. Jess and I have come to realize it's just a silly thing. It's just not. It's not something. And but then of course you lose. You end up losing because by being so secretive and quiet you don't benefit from collaboration and insight from other people who could help you. you know? Right. I agree. But, um, okay. So one last thing I forgot, there's one last thing we should, I think we should point out, which I don't know how much we talked about this, but so like if you want to develop a system and then license it, then you can actually make money, even though you're no, you don't have any money yourself. You're like, Hey, I'm going to go download some market data. I'm going to run some experiments, do some tests. And if I come up with something that, that looks good and that works and I can put it up there, it will just start auto trading and if it is successful, people start subscribing to it, and you can sell it on a weekly or monthly or something like quarterly basis. That's right. And it's a fair number of people who are making a good amount of money that way, even though you're, they're outside yes. the system and they had no capital themselves. Right. And that's uh, that, I, I should have been a, a little more articulate about it. I think that's also the other opportunity. That's you know the the common question you get from churlish, uh, negative, suspicious people when they hear about Collective Two is the following. If someone is such a great trader, why are they selling their system? Um, and, you know, I hear that all the time. And, and it is actually, it's a good question. <laughs> but I, I think part of the reason is um, that a lot of people just don't have that risk capital that we were talking about um, earlier in, in, in the podcast. I mean, it, it costs money to trade. And 
It takes a lot of time to develop a trading system. And so it makes sense that if you're going to invest a lot of time and also, oh, by the way, oh, you know, and the other thing about trading systems is they tend to have a relatively short half-life. So if you spend six months developing a trading system, you don't have a ton of capital personally available to trade it. It does make sense to try to leverage your efforts by selling the IP in a way that benefits both you and other people. And I think that's what's a lot of what's going on here. So yes, you can, there are some people, now look, does everyone on the site make half a million dollars in, in licensing and subscription fees? No, they don't. But there are quite a few people on the site that make good livings on the site and are pretty happy um, selling their systems on Collective2. Well, it's a, it's a way to finance their own trading if they want to trade their own stuff. I mean, you figure right. there's going to be a lot of people, and I've met a lot of people like this who have, they, were, they, either, they, have, de- they have degrees in math and physics. A lot of times they have advanced degrees, and, and, but they've always been fascinated with the market. But, you know, they don't, like I said, they don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars. They didn't um, kind of go through the Wall Street system and work for Goldman and work for some hedge funds. So they're just not even in that world. But they're like, hey, you know, I've read a lot of books on this. I've, I've I got some cool math tricks I want to try. And they can just do it. Say, hey, man, go download some data. End of day data is practically free. And um, it just seems like an interesting, cool way to actually – get, you know, play with it and actually see your results. Yeah. And it's good. I mean, it's also good discipline too, because it's, it's a way of, of, I mean, if you're even thinking about, um, uh, trading something with money, I'll go ahead and you don't even have to take subscribers if you don't want to, if you're not ready, but go ahead and put it on the platform and track the results and, and see how it does in a, in a way that, you know, you have to stick to the results that you see there. You can't just throw them in the garbage and say, Oh no, I wouldn't have done that, which is a common, uh, mistake of traders, right? Yeah, yeah. So um, I'd like to switch topics because I know we're getting towards the end of the show, and, and I, I, I meant to ask you about this a little earlier, but um, is your writing? So you've written two novels, Con Ed, which you published, I believe, in 2007, and uh, Switchback, which you published just this past July. And um, I'd, I'd be curious, I mean, first of all, how did you get into writing? I mean, it sounds like you, you, know, you came up, you know, you had a Masters and you know you were in business school at Stanford and you're in the startup thing. I mean, you know, how, what got you just started? Like, hey, I'm going to write a novel and then right. actually do it. And and how do you balance it with with everything you're doing now? Well, um, it's not. I mean, it's, it, <laughs> I I th- always thought of myself as a writer, not and and an accidental business person. I mean, I I I have always wanted to make a living being a writer. The the sad truth is, I I don't I don't know that I can ever make a living being a writer, but I, I'd like to pretend that I can someday. So um, uh, that's how I think of myself as a writer who happens to run you know, a web business. Um, and so I spend a lot of time on, on the writing and I try to carve out time. You know, part of, part of this, part of the choices, the choices I've made in terms of what company I, I run and in the ba- in the business I'm in and my infrastructure set up, you know, I work at my house and uh, I live in a suburb of New York City and uh, I wake up every day and go down to my office right next to the kitchen. I mean, those are all choices I think that I probably made in order to be able to write. I mean, it's you know, so um, I've been I'm not a particularly a prolific writer, unfortunately. I've only written two books. I, I'm just finishing up my third. And, um, but that's the thing I really love to do. Um, I love to, to sit there and, and write thrillers and, uh, novels of psychological suspense. And so I'll just keep doing it. And, um, I'm not sure which is, which is the hobby and which is the job, but, but I, I'm just figuring out a way to try to do both as best as I can. 
Well, it looks like you got some pretty good reviews here. I mean, Con Ed, which was in 2007, I mean, of the 24 customer reviews, you got four stars. I mean, that's a yeah. lot better than most. <laughs> well, my, my mother did it 22 times. So. <laughs> oh. That's good. God love your mothers, right? Um, so, and then the, um, and, okay, well, is it, does the writing provide any kind of, or the publishing of your novels provide any kind of reasonable income, or is it more just like you just love it and it's, and it's more just out of just, Fun. No, I, I mean, li- listen, I, I'm certainly not um, uh, James Patterson or Nelson DeMille. I, I'm really, a, uh, I'm, I think the technical term of art is, you know, mid-list writer at best. But, but you know, in today's day and age, you can make a fairly decent, you know, you're not going to be buying a, a mansion with it, but you can make a fairly decent living uh, writing books and uh, selling screenplay rights, and then they they get sold for in different countries um, and audiobook rights. I mean, it's a it's a, it's a very. I learned a whole lot about the business. I just assumed it was all about kind of typing a manuscript and quote someone bought it. But it turns out there's lots of ways to slice and die. I mean, if you have a book that's I guess the right genre, um, there's lots of ways to you know you get an agent and he or she figures out how to monetize the book and 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 you can make a you know if you turn out one or two books a year you can make a reasonably decent living doing it and so if anyone has the bent to do that i i i think it's 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 great fun i mean i would i would recommend it when is the audiobook for switchback coming out because we've been talking a lot about audiobooks lately i've been trying to get recommendations oh and, i'm so uh, glad you say looks- that i i, I yeah. personally i just want to say i love audiobooks this is my uh, this is a recent well, a discovery late in life for me uh, because, you know, I, I like to jog and I can just listen to the books while I'm jogging or walking my dog. I love them. They, they are to me like a, a, a form of art that is, uh, you know, it's like a collaboration between the author who writes the book and the narrator who can be quite brilliant. You know, I even have favorite narrators. Um, so, so I, I just, I'm so excited about audiobooks coming out with, uh, of my, of my work that, uh, but it turns out that the switchback audiobook uh, is coming out, I think in like two months or something like that. Um, there's right. some, there's some reason they, they, they sold the rights separately or I don't know, it's pretty arcane. I don't really know, but yeah, I'm looking forward to that. That's exciting. Did you have any participation in who the narrator was? I mean, if you, if you've been listening to a lot of books, I assume you might have some. Some, well, you know, I, I actually have favorites, uh, <laughs> believe it or not, yeah. but, but, you know, I know enough to not be the annoying mid-list author who has lots of opinions. <laughs> uh, I know my place in the world, and my place is to submit the manuscript to the agent and let them make the decisions and then just kind of be real quiet and not be annoying. Uh, maybe someday if I could um, uh, write a, a book that, that sells lots and lots of copies, I'll, I'll give my opinions. But until then, I'm, I just shut up. Now, what about um, self-publishing? We've talked to a few, uh, we've had a few interviews on the show with people who are, have been successful sort of self-publishing or eBooks. And, and I've, I've read a lot about how people are doing extremely well just publishing stuff so for the Kindle and things like that. And, and recently, we even talked about on the last show, which is that Amazon is now starting this sort of publishing um, effort where they're, where they're contracting directly with authors. And they got like, I don't know, 100 or 150 authors, Tim Ferriss and Penny Marshall being two of the authors they've, they've uh, contracted with. So what, what are your thoughts on that whole? Yeah, I, I, it, it's something I think about. Um, but the reality is, you know, if you think about what a publisher does, the, in theory, the reason you're splitting the money with the publisher, whatever the split is, 
is to is because the publisher makes sure that you it does two things it gets you into the distribution channels that's that's obvious and then uh second it 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 somehow uh creates enthusiasm and interest in your work now you know i i'm a bit more knowledgeable now and and i i i i can see why it's attractive for a mid-list author to want to um self-publish but on the other hand it's an awful lot of work i mean you know, it, it, it ain't, I, I said, well, I don't know much about it, but I suspect if you really want to be successful at it, you got to make it your job. And so, um, not only do you have to sit there and write the book, which is a lot of work, but then you got to go out there and kind of get people interested. Uh, what does that mean? I guess it means, you know, doing podcasts and going out and promoting and calling people and going to bookstores and just talking about it and writing a blog. And so maybe that is the appropriate way to, to do it. And if for certain genres, I, I suspect things that are computer um, and business uh, uh, centric, that probably is much easier to do. If you're writing fiction, I mean, I, I wouldn't even know where to begin. So I feel like I don't envy the publisher's job. Um, I'm happy to give the publisher as much money as they want you know, uh, if they'll get my book out there and get people interested in it. And, uh, you know, I guess that you, you reevaluate that over time. Uh, uh, but, but for now I, I don't, you know, running collective two and trying to get the manuscript done is enough for me. I I'll let, I'll let the other people handle the business aspects. How, how much of your time, so how was a, a day or week laid out for you in terms of time? So, I mean, writing seems to me that it would require a lot of a lot of sort of quiet, dedicated time, but, you know, running a business like collective two, I would imagine would be pretty all consuming. So how do you make all both those things happen? Yeah, it is. I mean, no one's really interested in other people's problems. I, I know that, but it is really, sometimes <laughs> it can be, uh, it can be a little bit stressful. There are days when, you know, you just want to crawl into a corner and, um, cover yourself with a blanket and never come out again. But, um, uh, but, you know, you get through them. I think the, the secret is, um, well, what I have found in my life is that I work very well in bursts of consistent effort. So, uh, for example, when I was finishing up my, my, my third book, I, I, I literally would lock myself in the room for two weeks at a time. I'd come out for food and water and to see my family on occasion and let them know I was okay. But um, that was, you know, I made that effort and I, I would it's hard. You really have to make trade-offs. Like I would, you know, I, I think I probably was not the greatest business partner to my partner for those two weeks of time, but I called him on the phone and I said, you know, look, I, I, I just have to finish this book. So, um, just make sure the servers don't go down, uh, and, 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 and let me know when, when, when they do. Uh, and that's, you know, I guess that's what you have to do. So it, it, I, I'm always interested in people's work habits. That to me is really interesting. Like how do people uh, organize their time? Do they work in the daytime or in nighttime? But, but I've, I have found that if you can organize your life in a way that you can do things, you know, uh, you, you do some, uh, well, of course, you know, context switching, context switching is painful. So if you can work on a sustained period of time on one project at a time and then switch tasks, that's much better than trying to do eight things at once in one day. Um, that's what I found anyway. Right. Yeah. I think context switching is the killer. So do you, do you allocate a certain amount of time that you try and on the writing, you try and do it in the, in, in, you know, in the mornings or in the evenings for like a couple hours, or do you say, I don't, I don't, don't write at all. And then you just allocate this week I'm writing, you know, or, right. or what? Um, so, it, uh, <laughs> I, I have found that I am a better writer in the morning. 
Um, so okay. I try to, when, when it's a writing day uh, or a writing week or a writing month, I will try to, you know, write for a couple of hours or for, for four hours in the morning and then uh, call it a day after that. Um, and then uh, switch to uh, other stuff, you know, customer service, programming, things like that. So, but, but uh, right now I'm in a, I'm in a moment of time where I'm just, uh, you know, as I said, I've, I've chosen to, I put, I pretty much am done with my book and um, I'm just letting it sit for a couple of weeks and I'm just focusing on the business now. So I guess that's how I do things. I, I switch every now and then from one task to the other. But that keeps everything fresh, so that's got to be nice, though, right? I mean, you can kind of imagine after doing a lot of writing, you get kind of burnt out and want to just take a break, or after doing a lot of collective two, it's probably nice to sit down and just write. Yeah, yeah. I actually, I'm glad, I'm glad you said that. Like, I really did. I I came back to collective two recently after taking a little hiatus from it. I I was really, as I said, sort of working on the book almost um, for for much of my days. Um, and then I when I when I got to a point where I was ready to stop for a while and turn back to collective two, I found myself really really refreshed and, and interested in, in new things. And, and I saw new things about the site and I, I had new ideas. And so, um, if, if you can organize your life in that way, whether it's, you know, th- with a hobby or, or, a, or, a, or something else that kind of takes you outside your business for mentally for a while, I think that might be, I'm, I'm not sure, but I think it might be a good idea. It'll, when you come back in, you'll, you'll see things anew, I think. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I, I feel the same way with projects. I'm going to take a break. And, and sometimes you just kind of go with whatever is really the most exciting, you know, and the most mm-hmm. fulfilling. Because when you, when you have something you really want to work on, but you don't allow yourself to work on it, and you, and you force yourself to work on things you don't really want to work on, you're only working like 30% capacity. Because every third right. thought is, oh, I just wish I could work on this other thing. <laughs> you know, it's just kind of go with it and as much as you can. Or, or do something. It's kind of an itch you got to scratch. If you don't scratch yeah. it, you're just annoyed and distracted. I totally hear you. I, I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah. So, Justin, do you have any final questions? Because I think we're, we're, you know, this has been a long interview. I guess we're about. No, I'm good. I, just, I think it's been a, a very interesting. I'm... Okay, so I, I'll finish off with one last question then. I mean, what are the, um, what's sort of the future of Collective 2? What are your growth prospects? Are, are you, um, are you, can you even just, can you even share with us like sort of what your, I don't know, annual growth rate is now? Uh, well, I mean, I, I don't even, <laughs> oh, I should, I should be ready for that kind of question. You know, I, I don't even think about it like that anymore. I guess, I guess once you um, think about your business as just the thing that you do to make a living and to provide for your family, you, you, you become a, a lot less interested in, in figuring out that exponential growth thing. I mean, Collective 2 is growing every year and really almost every month. Um, but it's definitely not the kind of business that is an eBay-like exponential growth. It's just a steady progression. And so, you know, what I do is I wake up every morning and I think about what is it I can do to make things incrementally better on, on whatever metric I care about. And that's what I focus on. And, and the rest sort of takes care of itself. But, but what we're really interested in doing is um, adding more and more brokerage firms to be compatible with us. So we're going out to all the brokerage firms that we can and, and working with their technology and their API and, and just, you know, just talking about tech, uh, trading systems. I think once people learn about the idea that there's a way to trade that doesn't involve personal emotion and fear and greed and that they can just uh, use an algorithm to trade, I think that's a really interesting idea. And the more people learn about it, the more they'll, they'll want to participate in it. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's, that's a good answer. I, well, I, 
you know, I, I had never heard of Collective Two until recently, and I, I, I had a couple reactions. It's like, man, I should have built this thing. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's right at the nexus of my expertise. So I'm like, I, this should have been something I, I, I should have built like five years ago. I'm surprised that I didn't, but I am glad it exists. I think you guys have done a great job. I think it's really cool. I think it's a great outlet for um, a, a lot of different types of people. And, um, you know, I, I actually wouldn't mind take, making use of it myself. It would be fun to play around with some strategies and, and then just put them up there and see how they do that. Even, whether or not, you know, they, they attracted subscribers. It would be fun to just say, okay, well, this is it. Let's put it up there and go. You should do that. And then we can chronicle it on the show. Yeah. Which is something we tend to do. Uh, Matthew, we spend a lot of time talking about our various efforts and then it's like, it's like the biggest loser every week. It's like how much weight? Uh-huh. Did you lose? <laughs> Great. <laughs> right, All yeah. right, guys. Well, I, I hope you'll, I hope I'll see you on the site and um, uh, maybe we can talk again after, after you have some success. Great. Well, Matthew, thank you so much for coming on the show and spending so much time with us and being so candid about so many different things you're working on. It's been a real pleasure having you on and and meeting you. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. I hope we'll talk soon. All right. That's a wrap. We're out.